Today's scripture reading is Psalm 19 and can be found on page 456 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read first in Polish and then in English. Psalm 19, Stworzyciel i Prawodawca. Niebo ogłasza chwałę Boga. Firmament obwieszcza dzieło rąk Jego. Dzień dniowi przekazuje słowo. Noc nocy oznajmia naukę. Nie są to słowa ani mowy, których nie można usłyszeć. Ich głos się nie rozchodzi po całej ziemi i aż po krańce świata ich mowy. W niebie postanowił on namiot dla słońca, a ono jak oblubieniec wychodzi ze swego mieszkania. Cieszy się jak wojownik ruszający w drogę. Ono wychodzi na skraju nieba i przechodzi aż na drugi kraniec i nic się nie schroni przed jego żarem. Prawo Pana jest doskonałe, daje ludziom pokrzepienie. Świadectwo Pana jest wiarygodne, ono daje mądrość ludziom prostym. Nakazy Pana są prawe, rozweselają serce. Przykazania Pana jest jasne, oświeca oczy. Bojaźń Pana jest czysta, trwa na wieki. Sądy Pana są słuszne, wszystkie są sprawiedliwe. Godniejsze pożądanie niż złoto i mnóstwo drogich kamieni, słodszy od miodu, od słodyczy, który sączy się z plastra. Także Twój sługa jest o nich pouczony, a kto je zachowuje, otrzyma wielką nagrodę. Kto dostrzeże swe błędy, oczyść mnie z tego, co przede mną ukryte. Koronnie także przed piechą. Niech nie panuje nade mną, wtedy będę nienaganny i zostanę oczyszczony z wielkim grzechu. Niech będą Ci miłe słowa ust moich i myśli mojego serca. Panie, moja skało i odkupicielu. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and it's circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare my innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumption sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Thanks. Thank you, God. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's lovely to be with you all. And uh, I planned this morning's service for the most part, but it didn't hit me until I heard him reading in Polish just the poetic beauty that there's nowhere in this world where the glory of God is not known. And it was haunting to hear it read um, in another language this morning. So I hope you rejoice in that with me. Um, good morning again. It's wonderful to be with you all. And I'm excited to be opening up God's word with you and to worship with you this morning. And I want to give a thanks to Pastor Gerald and to the elders for inviting me to preach again. Um, wasn't exactly sure how it went the first time, but I was relieved to hear uh, their second invitation. And for those of you who are here for that, I do not plan on singing Queen this morning. So uh, I will restrain myself as much as I might want to. But thanks to the tech team. Thanks to Prajwal uh, for leading us. Thank you to the whole worship team for leading us. And of course, thank you to God for the beauty of his word to us, for the beauty of Psalm 19, uh, this particular psalm. And um, let's take a moment together as we think on this, as we think back to what was just read for us so beautifully. To, don't, don't look at your Bibles yet. Just think about the verses of Psalm 19. Maybe breathe, think about them a little bit, and, and, and what comes to mind. Well, it begins that the heavens declare the glories of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. And even if coming here this morning you didn't know that those were the words of Psalm 19 in particular, I'm fairly confident that you recognize those words as soon as they were read. They're haunting. They're a bit of an earworm, if you will. Uh, they just sound right. They sound good. And I would say that they sound beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that C.S. Lewis, whom I'm sure many of you are aware of, one of the most celebrated literary minds of modernity, declared that Psalm 19 was the most beautiful poem in all of the Psalter, and perhaps one of the most beautiful poems in the world. And he continues, David continues, in them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. And yes, this is in fact beautiful and remarkable poetry. But what enhances our ability to, to remember it, and I experienced this the other day, someone came to my house and asked me, like literally yesterday, what are you preaching on? I said, Psalm 19. And they said, oh, I'm not familiar. And I said, the heavens declare. And then they immediately finished the psalm with me. And I think what makes it so familiar is that it is familiar, right? The themes are familiar. It starts with the glory of God in creation. And we all have thoughts on creation. We are creatures ourselves. We live and walk amongst creation. It's the waters we're swimming in. It continues to the law of the Lord, right? The rules and regulations. We, we all have thoughts about those. We might reject them. We might accept them. We might think they're beautiful, we might think they're insane, but whether you like to admit it or not, you are not neutral towards the law of God. And finally, he concludes with confession, perhaps the most loaded topic of all. Maybe you've been forced to confess by someone, maybe you've resisted confession despite the cost to yourself or to others, or maybe something deep inside you has prompted you to confession before. And either way, again, we all have thoughts on confession. And so I would say that, yes, Psalm 19 is, in fact, beautiful and familiar. But we have to be careful because at the intersection of beautiful and familiar, there's a danger of taking things for granted, right? We, 
We take so much that meets these two criteria for granted, the blueness of the sky, the beauty of the sun. Here in Oak Park, perhaps the beauty of Frank Lloyd Wright homes, right? Some of the most celebrated homes in all of the world. We take them for granted. We say, what are these people taking pictures of? I, I live here, it's not a big deal. Maybe as uh, members of Calvary, the beauty of this sanctuary. How often, I wonder, do you stop and rejoice in the blessing that this room is? And perhaps cutting even more deeply, personally, the voice of a loved one, the voice of a spouse, of a child, the care of a parent or the fellowship of a dear friend. I don't want us to take any of these things for granted, and this morning I don't want us to take Psalm 19 for granted, because the Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, right, it's the, the, the Bible in miniature, it's the gospel in miniature, it was David's word to God becomes God's word to us, it's a little liturgy into David's life and therefore into our lives, and it has wisdom for the worshiping soul. And so let's not take this for granted. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to breathe fresh life into us regarding all of these beautiful yet familiar things. And this morning, Psalm 19 in particular, the three topics we'll be discussing today. And for my outliners, my note takers, the topics are God's creation in verses 1 through 6, God's command in verses 7 through 11, and our confession in verses 12 to 14. For simplicity's sake, creation commands confession. Creation commands confession. And I ask that you keep your Bibles open, maybe reopen them. Psalm 19 is found on page 456 in most ESVs and our pew Bibles. And just in general, it's in the middle of, um, of all your Bibles. And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray in the spirit of Psalm 19. And I ask that you would join me in your hearts. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word this Lord's Day, I pray that the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All right, and so we begin with God's creation. And again, take a, this will be a theme, take a minute to review these first four verses. What is David saying about God's creation, and therefore what should we think about God's creation? Again, just a few moments, review those verses. And you may be tempted to say the glory of God, but I would point out that it's actually only mentioned once in these verses and only once throughout the whole psalm. I think that David is actually emphasizing something different here. He's, he's emphasizing or communicating something different. And uh, that was a bit of a pun. Communication is in fact what he is communicating. If, if we read these just these four verses, nine times we are told that the heavens and skies are speaking with us. You can follow along. In verse 1, the heavens and skies declare and proclaim, respectively. In verse 2, the day pours out speech and the night reveals knowledge. In verse 3, we read of more speech, words, and voices. In verse 4, the heavens again have a voice and they use words to communicate. And what they are communicating, the glory of God, is, is almost assumed. After all, if, if you believe in God, you probably believe in his glory. And David thinks that anyone who looks up must, must believe in God's glory. And so what I think he's trying to emphasize to us is, is, not, uh, is not such a mystery. He, he wants us to stop, look up, or in this case, open our ears and listen to the voice of creation. What is it trying to teach us? And before we discuss what it's trying to teach, I think it's important to note that he is, in fact, talking about all of creation, not just the heavens 
and skies. The, for the Hebrew people, hierarchies weren't that foreign to them. They kind of enjoyed them. They wanted a king, remember? Um, and so what the leader did, right, the follower was supposed to do, and his children and his children and her children and their children, all the way down the line, kind of like uh, Paul's golden chain of discipleship. I think here David has a, a silver chain of the cosmos. And so what the heavens, skies, and sun are doing, therefore the mountains ought to do, the trees ought to do, the grass, the valleys, the rivers, etc., all the way down the golden chain of the cosmos, or from the farthest galaxy to the smallest molecule, as Shailin so eloquently puts it. And I think that's for an example why the New Testament authors and even Jesus himself could so boldly tell the Hebrew people that even if you don't worship me, the very rocks will cry out because all of creation is meant to declare God's glory even if God's people fall silent. And so in a very psalm-like fashion, David is saying creation is a signpost. It's, it's beckoning us. It's calling us to join in this worship calling you and I and our neighbors down the street, down the road, across the ocean, everyone in the whole world, to worship God. And now, I understand some of you might be tempted to check out. Um, you've heard a preacher say, say this to you, maybe yell this at you before, you know, open your eyes, fall on your knees, repent, worship the glory of the God, fear and tremble. But I ask that you not check out here. And this is one of those moments where I want the Holy Spirit to work in us and give us a fresh understanding of this declaration of God's glory and power. I want you to invite David's kind invitation to enjoy not just the glory of God, but creation itself. David didn't write this psalm and these verses in order that we might brush the sun aside, cover up the moon, ignore the stars, and just reach out into the ether and desperately grab on something, like, oh, let's just get the glory of God outside of anything else. No, he tells us to look specifically at creation because creation is a sign for God. It's what Pastor David, uh, sorry, Pastor Gerald so often talks about, right? This is typology, types and signs. We have here a type-archetype relationship, and as Pastor Gerald again says, we need the types to understand the archetype, right? If, if you didn't know what creation was, none of us would have any context for what the word glory even means. No, it's, it's the glory and grandeur and power of mountains that help us understand what the glory and grandeur and power of God is. It's the beauty of the trees and the stars that help us understand what God's beauty is like. Yes, we need creation. And therefore, David is inviting us to soak in, to, to bask in, and to enjoy the beauty of the revelation seen there. And from that place of awe, and even, I pray, rest, to declare with the creation that God is glorious. Look at the following verses as we move to 4 and, and verse 5. He writes that in this creation, right, the, this, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. God has given the place, the, the sun, a, a place of rest. He's given it a tent. And then the sun personified enjoys God's glory and is filled and animated and sustained by God's glory in a very, very powerful way, right? He gives us the image of a, of a groom leaving his house, sprinting to his bride on his wedding day, filled with joy. And though his course is immeasurably long from east all the way to the west, he is sustained by the joy that his bride gives him, like a mighty warrior running to the battle. And friends, if God provides a tent for the sun and he provides joy and he provides a bride for the sun, and he, if he provides food for the birds of the air, and if he dresses the lilies of the meadow so beautifully, how much more 
will our Father in heaven care for us. Yes, friends, the heart of the beauty of creation is not only a declaration of God's glory, but a declaration of his love for us. He made the world so beautiful because he loves it, and he made us because he loves us. And it's true, of course, that our love of nature can go too far. It can become a distraction. It can become totalizing. It can even become destructive. But that doesn't mean that, at a default sense, our understanding and our appreciation of nature has to be contrary to our understanding and appreciation of God's word. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this psalm, he wrote, How foolish and wicked are those who, instead of accepting the two sacred books, creation and Bible, and delighting to behold the same divine hand in each, spend all their wits endeavoring to find discrepancies and contradictions. We may rest assured that the true vestiges of creation will never contradict Genesis, nor will a correct cosmos be found at variance with the narrative of Moses. They are wisest to read both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work, and concerning them believe, my father wrote them both. Yes, the word book and the world book, creation and the word of God, are two volumes of the same stories, and they cannot contradict each other. They serve each other. God wrote them both for his glory and for our good. And I remember reading that quote for the first time, you know, studying the Psalms some years ago, and it moved me deeply, as it just did again. And that's because I truly have always enjoyed nature and science and these things. And my wife and I, we love bird watching. You know, shout out to the birders out there. We love dinosaurs, mostly because my daughter Stevie loves dinosaurs. I love fishing and hiking and mountains. And funnily enough, my favorite uh, public figure is probably Neil deGrasse Tyson. I know he's not a Christian, but he's incredibly entertaining and insightful. Go astronomy. And I actually took an extra astronomy and physics class in high school, if you can believe it. It was my favorite subject. And I want to take a moment to rejoice that these hobbies, these pastimes, but for some of you, even these careers don't need to be chided as distractions from the faith, but can be enjoyed as types and signs for our faith. They, they aid in our search. They aid in our looking for flashes of the heat of God's love. Or as David writes, they're declarations of the glory of the Most High God. And I tell you this for what I hope is a happy first application. Enjoy creation. Go on a trip, go hiking, go fishing, bird, garden, you know, whatever suits you, you know. David didn't write this psalm. Um, I say this because you don't need to go on a trip per se. You can do it even on your afternoon walks. David didn't write this psalm like on a holiday trip to the uh, Appalachian Mountains, right? No, he probably wrote this psalm laying at night watching his sheep. Or perhaps even more profoundly, he wrote this psalm running from his persecutors in the wilderness. Yes, we can enjoy creation in every walk of life, and therefore we can enjoy God. And before we transition, I will say, and, and David is wise to remind us, that though they are beautiful, they can't save us. That, that's a word of caution. Creation cannot save us. There's, there's much danger. There's forests, and there's skies, and there's seas, but there's also lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And... Uh, this is a glorious, I told you I wouldn't sing Queen, not that I wouldn't sing. Um, all glorious, truth-revealing creation is bright as the sun, but much of it, as David reminds us in verse 6, is dangerous. Nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. And this is almost certainly a double entendre for the warmth of God, but also the anger of God. And so, friends, yes, a sign pointing us to the doctor is helpful, but only so far as we follow it down the road to his office and, or her office and obey their healing regiment. And so David follows this archetypal signpost of creation down the road 
of Revelation. And where does he lead us? He leads us to verse 7 through verse 11, to the law of the Lord, or God's commands. And I will read this again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Having reread this, there's a chance that some of you are a little, a little mad at me, especially if you uh, don't consider yourself a believer. And that's because you think to yourself, oh, you know, another preacher has done the classic trip. He's, he's wooed me with the love of God and the glory and beauty of creation, but then slam, another list of rules, the commands and the laws of God. But again, I would ask us to stop and ask the Holy Spirit to give us a fresh understanding of the law of God. And not just unbelievers, but even believers, and maybe especially believers who think or who know they take their understanding of the law for granted. How on earth is it possible that David could say that the law of the Lord was better than all the riches of the world and sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb? Well, there are a lot, truly a lot, but today we're only going to focus on two of them. Firstly, this is simple, we almost always get the law of the Lord incorrect. Yes, we almost always get God's commands, like as a, uh, as a category, wrong. Now, what do I mean by this? In, in our modern context right now, for you and I, the word law, pretty much uh, undisputed, means a list of regulations that you and I are required to follow. And if I were to say, hey, you broke the law, it means you violated said list. But what David means when the word law is rendered, especially in our Hebrew Bibles, is Torah. And Torah refers to teaching, instruction, and guidance. And not just any teaching, instruction, and guidance, but specifically within the context of trying to help the listeners, not compel morality per se. Now, of course, God does compel morality, and Jesus compels our morality as well, and David undoubtedly sought that his moral life might fulfill the law of God, but that's not what he's emphasizing here. I believe, and countless scholars believe, that what's being emphasized here is his relationship with the Lord, more specifically, the Lord's relationship towards him. He's not talking about rules, he's talking about love. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to paraphrase these verses. I think this is a faithful, faithful paraphrase, and you can read along on the screens behind me. This is verse 7 through 11 paraphrased. Is it up there yet? Oh, our screens are having a struggle. I'm going to wait it out. It's, it's worth it. <laughs> mm, come on, pro presenter. All right, well, take my word for it. Here we go. The teaching of the Lord will restore you. The honesty of the Lord will give you wisdom the guidance of the Lord will bring you joy. The command of the Lord will open your eyes. The fear of the Lord makes you clean forever. His judgments are righteous altogether. Now, I hope that paints a little bit, there it is, lovely, clearer picture for you. Um, but if it doesn't, I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to paraphrase it even more simply and even more intimately in a way that I truly believe David is trying to communicate. Here's my, my second paraphrase. Jump ahead to the next slide. Thank you. The Lord brought me back to life. The Lord gave me understanding. The Lord put joy in my heart, and the Lord opened my eyes. In honoring him, I have never been led astray, 
and he has never been unjust to me. And I ask you, if you take this, if you take this for true, would, have you ever considered God's commandments this caring? If you had, maybe, maybe then you would understand that the law of God is loving. Perhaps you would see that it is, in fact, more beautiful than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. And so you might ask me, how? How, how can you come to this understanding? Well, we come to this second understanding because, and we're, we're going to re-say something here, Again, we come to, to types and signs. Yes, the law of the old covenant was a type and sign for the law of the new covenant. I've said creation is a type pointing us to God's love. Now I tell you that the law of the Torah was a type meant to lead Israel to the real thing, to the love of God, to Yahweh himself. See, God didn't want theirs or ours puppet-like obedience he didn't want their affectionless respect or empty, thankless offerings. No, he makes it clear time and time again throughout the Torah that he wants them. He wants their very selves, their very hearts, everything that they are and everything that they have because they love him and he loves them. And he wants them to love him like the sun running through the sky after his bride or joyously into battle. And even in the Old Testament context that David is writing in, this was true. So allow me to tell you the story of David's people in brief that we might see this. See, the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt, and then God brought them out of slavery, but they sinned and rebelled and grumbled. So while they were wandering through the wilderness, he provided water for them, and he provided manna for them. But then they complained and grumbled and rejected him again. And so still, by fire and by cloud, he led them through the wilderness, despite their grumbling, to Mount Sinai, where he might covenant with them, where he might marry them, make them his people. But again, there at the very wedding altar, they reject and grumble and complain again, and they make a golden calf, and they have an orgy, and they say, no, God, we want this instead. But still in love, he spares them and builds a house in their midst, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The very presence of God comes among his people, but they still reject him, and they will continue to and continue to. And, and he realizes this because he knows their nature. And so then what happens? God, he makes a way that no matter what their sin are, they might find their way back into his loving arms. And the Christians and the typology lovers here are screaming in their minds, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it actually isn't Jesus. It, it is, but it's not Jesus yet. In the Old Testament context, the way that God gave his people to crawl their way, to run lovingly back into his arms like a child, was the law. It was a means by which their sins could be atoned for and they could be re-embraced in the Father who still loves them's arms. And so David here in Psalm 19 rejoices and declares that this law that has led him back to God is as glorious as the stars in the sky. And it's as warm as the heat of the sun. And therefore, my second application this morning is, is very simply, you might even say simplistically, read the word of God. Read the law of God. Look for these moments where his love for you is displayed in his guiding of you, his kind, gentle guiding. And if you don't see it, read it again and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the beauty of his law. For I promise you it declares in no uncertain terms that he loves you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I could go on about the Old Testament and the law for many, many more hours. Um, I even had to cut like a big chunk of my sermon that's about the biblical theology of the honeycomb referenced in verse, uh, in verse 8, I think, or a 10. I'm not kidding. We can talk about it later. Um, but we have to come to a conclusion. We have to move on in the psalm. And so we move towards David's confession. 
which again I'll reread, starting in verse 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Yes, David's confessions, or just confessions in general. Now, I believe there are two responses to David's confession in this moment. And the first one, if I'm honest with you, I truly believe is the natural response. And that response is disappointment. Maybe because once again, you're like, man, this pastor had me, but bait and switch. You know, God loves me in creation. He loves me in the law. But now I have to confess in order to access this love. You feel like I'm slamming the door of your heart right back shut. I've just spent 25 minutes trying to convince you, and I've blown the whole thing. And I'm sympathetic to this view. I really am. And I'm especially sympathetic to this view as the worship pastor of Calvary, the one who week after week leads us in these confessions, who, who sometimes writes or prepares these confessions. And I am aware of that awkward moment that can happen so often, or I hope not so often, but that truly can happen when, you know, we're singing, we're, we're grooving, we're loving the love of God. You're like, open up the door. And then I'm like, stop, sit down, start confessing. It's obligatory confession time. Again, I, I don't mean to lead the moments like this, but I'm confessing to you, I'm admitting to you in love that I understand if it feels like that. And I apologize truly if a confession I've led you in has ever felt co coercive or, or hurtful. It's not intended. But there is another view of confession, and it's my true view. It's Calvary's view. I believe it's the Bible's view, and it's neither compulsive nor harsh. And I pray that I might lead us in this view of confession every time we go before the throne of grace. And it starts, this view of confession, as Psalm 19 does, with a call to worship. It invites you to look and behold the glory of God and worship him. And as, if, as I've endeavored to preach, it then goes to the commands, the rules, the law of the Lord. And it invites you to look at them and see, wow, God does love me. I see that in these laws. And it takes the Holy Spirit, but, but that's the prayer. But then it goes deeper, and it goes back. It rewinds the clock again through Psalm 19, through these types and shadows. And it considers not the author David, but the author Jesus himself. And yes, friends, it doesn't just consider the heavens and the skies, but the one who made them. And we realize that if Jesus created this good creation for us by just the word of his power, yet he took the time to make us and craft us in our mother's wombs, each of us individually then he must really, truly love us. And we don't just consider the law of God on its own, but we consider the one who wrote the law, Jesus Christ, the very judge who renders mercy after mercy upon, and grace upon grace for sin upon sin and has every day for all of eternity since the first humans sinned. And therefore, we come to trust that if Jesus can forgive the whole weight of all the sin of the world and he can forgive me, then he must truly love me. And we don't just consider the, the dwelling place of the sun and the sky, but we consider the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was with the Father in heaven, radiant and beautiful, humbled himself, took on flesh, and made himself a servant dwelling among us. And not just the course of the sun from east to west, but the course of the sun in heaven, who came down from heaven, to the cross, 
who endured all manner of, of suffering and trial and loss, who was beaten, who was mocked, who was whipped, and who was nailed to that tree, and then died, went through hell, and then ran all the way back to heaven, and not for his own glory, but for the joy that was set before him, his bride, you and die. And if we think, if Jesus could run that course for you and for me, he must truly, truly love us. And I pray that we come by the Holy Spirit to realize without a shadow of a doubt each time we confess in this manner that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, not even our very sin, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And friends, this view of confession joyfully realizes that we do not confess so that God might love us. We confess in order that we might love God. For he always has and he always will love us. It's we who grumble and stumble and complain. Look at your Bibles. We look again to, to verse 13. And we see that David confesses literally everything. In verse 12, the hidden sins of his life. And in verse 13, the obvious, the presumptuous sins. That's like saying, Lord, forgive me the things that I willingly do in public. Very presumptuous indeed. Uh, implying, therefore, everything in between, from a white lie to his mother as a, as a child, to the abuse of Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah. He confesses it all. And he assumes that he will continue to sin for the rest of his life. That's why verse 12 begins that his sins are undiscernible. They're uncountable. They're unfathomable. But what does he ask for? He asks that his sin might not rule over him, that it might not control him, that it might not shackle him. He says, verse 13, let them not have dominion over me. He wants to cast his sins off and be rid of them, that they wouldn't come in between his God and him. And it's when that happens, when there is no longer any sin between David and the Lord that he can proclaim, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He's confessing, again, a deep desire for intimacy with the Lord. And we're going to get into the translation here a little bit to help parse that out. So in your Bibles, in your ESVs, it says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And this obviously is a good translation. Shout out to the ESV Translation Committee, truly. But this word meditate is very, very formal and comes with all types of baggage, right? There's Christians who reject meditation, even though meditation is the Bible, just because of the cultural baggage that it has. But in Hebrew, this word meditation refers to the quiet murmurings of the heart. And I'm not kidding, when I read in a commentary that they said the word murmur was left behind because they think readers might think that David was having heart problems. And as funny as that is, it truly is funny, it's tragic because it neuters the intimacy that David desires with his God. And then we come to the word acceptable, which again is a beautiful, beautiful translation. We do want God to accept us. But in Hebrew, this idea of acceptance is far more connected to delightment and pleasure. He's asking God to delight and pleasure in him. And he wants, and he knows he wants, to delight and pleasure in the Lord. And so with all this in mind, we paraphrase again that David wants the words of his mouth, those big, out loud things that he offers to God, and the murmurs of his heart, right? Perhaps even murmurs of his heart that are a secret to him. He, he doesn't know them. Perhaps his heart's murmurs are undiscernible, but they're not undiscernible to God. And he wants all of that, all of himself, 
to be pleasing and delightful to the Lord. And he trusts that this is true because the Lord is his rock and his redeemer. See, even David saw the love of God, the love of Jesus in Psalm 19. And so as we conclude, truly, as we conclude, I pray this together for us in this intimate sense. May the words of my mouth, of our mouths, may the murmurs of all of our hearts be pleasing and delightful in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. And Calvary, I want to say this to you week after week, truly. And, and Pastor Gerald does say it to you week after week, that you are pleasing and delightful to Jesus. He loves you so much that he was willing to die on the cross for you. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he died on the cross, then there is nothing that can separate you from this love. And so we confess again one more time in conclusion with King David, and we declare with King David, may the words of our mouths and the murmurs of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, with the full knowledge and the full assurance that in Christ Jesus they are. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we each might come to know more and more truly each day the glory of your love for us and the beauty and the riches of your love for us. And God, I pray that we would not take these things for granted, no matter how familiar they are. Lord, help us not take the gospel of Jesus Christ for granted. And we come before you every day, God, every moment, every hour of our lives, and I pray that we might accept your love for us, and it would be our heart's desire to be made more and more acceptable to you. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's strong name. Amen.